I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Sarah Havend, has taught at every grade level from elementary to graduate school, led teacher professional development, and designed curricula in multiple STEM subjects. She has designed and participated in virtual schools and virtual professional development in ways that have helped define the field and is currently a senior research project manager at Concord Consortium, a nonprofit educational research and development organization based in Concord, Massachusetts and Emeryville, California. From the earliest days of the internet, Sarah has devoted her career to the development of creative and engaging online curricula for both student learning and teacher training. She is a co-author of the book, Facilitating Online Learning, Effective Strategies for Moderators, published in the year 2000, based on the Concord Consortium's early work with virtual teaching and learning. So Sarah, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Tell us a bit about your background. Uh, you know, what prepared you for the work you're doing now and have been doing for so long? I'm not sure what prepared me for the internet, except that at the time that the internet was opening up, I was working at a company in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Bolt, Brannock and Newman, which was in the center of the development of web coding. So we learned about it very early. We were an educational department. I'm not sure what prepared me for the internet and working online in particular but I had been teacher and working in teacher professional development already with a lot of travel involved to be face-to-face. And when the internet was first opened up, I was part of a group that was looking at how it could be used for teacher professional development. So we got an early start and had some early adventures of learning what it's like to be a part of a global community, like designing professional development where teachers could read about a strategy and then design it into something they were going to try with their class and then come back and report how it went, which is a very new kind of an activity design in comparison to what you typically got in a um, maybe a one or two day professional development seminar or institute where you couldn't really go and come back and, and debrief about your experience. You could just absorb a lot and then go try it and forget about it or whatever happens in those kind of one-off professional development practicums. So we were pretty excited about it, except we did have a global audience and our teachers in Australia reminded us when they saw the assignment that they were uh, on summer break in February, not <laughs> not in the middle of the school year. So we had those kinds of snafus where we just weren't thinking globally yet in a very educated way. But it was it was definitely fun to be a part of that. And I've stayed with it, I think, theory would have it because I'm an introvert. And so introverts tend to be much better online where they can think slowly and not be distracted and, and not feel like they're filling up airtime and yet still get whatever it is that they want to say out and then get feedback for it, which is new to them. So there is quite a bit of research about how when virtual groups meet in person, <laughs> the uh, people that were the most excited and enthusiastic and chatty online are like the mousiest people in the room. It's very entertaining. So it does work for some people and definitely not for others. Right. Some people need that face-to-face contact and other people really appreciate the uh, thoughtfulness that can go into uh, to emails, for instance, and now texting. And it's become actually, I think, probably more common than not among young people to for most of their conversations to be texting. And so there's something safe about it. Perhaps to the detriment and dysfunction. It's a, yeah. it's a real uh, mixed mixed bag. Also, tell us about meeting Bob Tinker in a Concord cafe. And for those for the audience, uh, Concord is is where the um, next door to Lexington, where the Revolutionary War started. It's where Thoreau and Emerson lived, and Walton Pond, and it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Which you're not at, you're not at anymore. You're not you're now in uh, in Oregon. Robert Tinker uh, was a trained physicist and a passionate educator around making 
difficult science curriculum uh, accessible for everyone because he loved it. He wanted everybody to love it. And he established an organization uh, called Turk, which is still in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it got very big and successful, and it's still there. And he wanted to work again in a small context, more of a startup environment. And so with the arrival of the internet, he dreamed up these two possible projects. One was the very first virtual high school, which is also still out there. Um, I think it's called VHS Collaborative. You can look it up online, vhscollaborative.org, I believe. And the other one was this project that I was mentioning earlier where we were experimenting with, it was a National Science Foundation project for looking at whether high quality professional development was possible online. And they were both pretty substantial grants. And so with those two grants, he started a new organization called Conquer Consortium. And it started from a coffee group that I was a part of. And it was called a consortium because all of us were going to do a little something. But then he got these two mammoth grants. <laughs> so we just became his board of directors and, and um, he became the president of Concord Consortium based on these two grants. And it's still continuing to think about revolutionary digital technology and how it can support education. You mentioned earlier that young people tend to communicate mostly digitally by text or using social media. And there's a lot in the media about um, the detrimental effects of, of that. And, you know, I would say that online learning is a tool now. It's like one of the tools in your toolkit that people can use that's better for some things and not so good for other things. And so what you were saying before about some people really need FaceTime and, and interaction in the moment and, and sort of real-time exchange. And others blossom in a more thoughtful kind of a, a deeper, slower context online, which is really different, I would say. Learning online is very, very different than social networking, not really comparable. In the introduction to the book that you co-wrote, um, Facilitating Online Learning, it says, quote, the number of virtual learning communities is bound to increase greatly in the years to come. I found that pretty funny to read now. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> So I'm wondering, with uh, in the, this era of COVID, I mean, it's raising a lot of questions about online learning, which is one of the reasons I was excited to interview you about it. And just to clarify, um, I had done a previous interview with Justin Reich, a professor at MIT, about MOOCs, Massive Online Open Courses, which is really a different kettle of fish altogether. It's looking for ways of a computer-driven course that could be open to massive numbers of people. But what we're talking about here with you, I think, is using technology and internet with a teacher. It's it's not meant to be a mass a mass produced or mass prod product. It's not reaching more than the usual number of of kids, whatever grade level they're they're at. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to clarify is that it seems that this is a technology that can be used either for a fully online high school, let's say, but it could also be used as an, in a hybrid way with students in a physical school where they're some of their time is is doing internet research with the teacher being a kind of guide or facilitator. So there's really quite a lot of variety in, in what this can mean. That's for sure. And a variety of quality as well as as variety of venues or or ways of using the tools that online learning provides. I mean, the community very purposefully called what happened during the pandemic with online learning remote learning because it was emergency basis, everybody jumping in with both feet, nobody having any background or experience and just stumbling and scrambling along and never being able to stop and reflect and say, hey, what's working and what's not? And in fact, we didn't have any choice. Like the kids were home and so you just had to do whatever it was you could grasp to do and suffer through the problems that it created. And that's not online learning, that's an emergency. It's like hospital services aren't the hospital services we have now. We're in an emergency. However, there is at this stage where children are back in school and universities are back in face-to-face -face session where many folks who 
had to do that are thinking, well, I learned all that stuff. Maybe I didn't really want to, but there were in fact some pleasant surprises along the way. And maybe there's some things that I want to keep in my toolkit now that I have been forced to learn how to use them. Or we have so much so much more uh, Wi-Fi and infrastructure has been set up in rural areas and youth in urban areas have devices that they may not have had before. The pandemic was really a game changer in terms of progress and access. We're not there yet, but there's even talk of going the last mile, the last foot, the last few inches for rural uh, Wi-Fi. And it is those phases and each of those phases are equally, (laughs) or at least each of those phases of, of mile and feet and inches are all difficult. You're not there until you're completely there in a rural context. So a lot of things are changing more. So Sarah, what would be uh, an example or two of a skill that most teachers in this country have learned to do because of the pandemic and will be keeping as a way of uh, enhancing their instruction? Well, I've heard talk in places like New England that there's no more such thing as a snow day because (laughs) even if you were putting your syllabus on Google Classroom or some kind of a a platform, uh, similar platform in the past, now your assignments were there and um, the discussion groups were up and you knew how to set up a discussion or you knew how to set up the um, handing things in online. And so those kinds of tasks, I think, will become more prevalent than they were before. In terms of online discussion, I don't think teachers in K-12 have particularly found that successful or something they want to hold on to, even though it remains a passion of mine. There's limited usefulness, and yet it can be extremely useful, I think, in some contexts. Yeah, one of the pitfalls, it seems to me, is that when neither the teacher nor the student are, were expecting to do online learning, you know, they didn't, it wasn't a choice, that it's particularly for teenagers in high school, it's so unrewarding socially that there's a tendency to tune out or turn the camera off and that then the teacher does, doesn't even know if the student is there. And it's just uh, very different than being in person, encouraging and, and inspiring and redirecting and, and all that. I don't know if there's any possible way of getting around that. Well, two things. One is that real-time online, such as Zoom, where your camera is off, that's very different than asynchronous learning, which is what I'm familiar with. The synchronous online learning strategies really came in with what we called early on Web 2.0, which I've learned recently is not something that's particularly familiar to younger people, people will ask me, what's Web 2.0? That that actually recently has surprised me. But what it meant was that before Web 2.0, online learning was all asynchronous. There There wasn't anything that was live or in real time. And now with Zoom, you have this choice of cameras off and the real-time issues are not things that I can particularly speak to. They're not really my expertise. Although I am currently working on a project with some seventh graders who are helping one of the projects at Concord design a biology curriculum. It's taken a long time to build trust, and it's all been on Zoom because of the pandemic. And the cameras have gradually come on. And I just really bow to all of the teachers who've had to suffer through that sudden situation and all of the students as well and all the privacy exposures that people tripped over and it's it's been a very difficult thing and I wouldn't really want to speak to (laughs) I have no advice for that (laughs) I guess is what I'm saying really my expertise is on the asynchronous yeah so to use a a chess analogy uh, asynchronous would be like playing postal in the old days postal chess where you just make one move and send them a letter (laughs) with the chess notation on it to your opponent and so you have days and days, you know, to uh, to think about your move, as opposed to what's usually done online now is even actual games online or even speed chess online, where it's at, you're in the same time frame. I would say there's actually a middle ground because there has always been online learning, like Pony Express-based online learning, where you would get your materials or the one-room schoolhouse teacher would get the materials and then send them back. I don't know. I don't know what the designs were. 
but there was distance learning before there was the internet. And asynchronous is a little bit more close, close in time exchange than like week to week rather than what you, what you described in the having long time, long time to think about one move. Here in Las Cruces, we used to have uh, something called a homebound placement. It was for students who, either for medical reasons or because they were so incredibly disruptive, had to stay home and supposedly be taught from there. And, and what that mm -hmm. consisted of was a teacher going in a couple of times a week with a bundle of materials for the students to do. And it was basically like a mostly a homework. And the teacher would be there to help correct and grade and discuss. But most of the time, the student was on their own. So that would be maybe an example of pre-internet distance learning. Yeah, and those students were some of our most rewarded students in the original virtual high school project because suddenly their part in the discussion was just like everybody else's. They could be in a regular high school class where they were participating in weekly discussions and having thoughts about the reading or the experience or the video or whatever it was that they were, the science experiment. And their thoughts were just as, you know, on equal ground as everybody else's. And they were getting that peer exchange, not just what you just described of being one-to-one -one with a single teacher on occasion. So yeah, that was really groundbreaking for uh, students like that. And in fact, virtual learning can be groundbreaking for students who don't have other access to peers. And at virtual high school, and this is probably, I don't know about all the virtual high schools. Most of them are state-based like Michigan or Florida uh, virtual high school. But the original, the what's called VHS Collaborative now, it's global. And so you can have participants in your marine biology high school class from all over the world. It's, everything's in English, but with Google Translate, they don't even have to know English to be an equal co-participant. And, you know, they can just use Google Translate to participate. Something really amazing about that. So I'm just wondering... Getting back to COVID, was was there some way that Concord Consortium was helping out with teacher training during the pandemic, or was it just too much in crisis mode? I mean, not not that they, but everyone else, uh, that it just was not conducive. Well, we were we were in the same crisis. We had all kinds of professional development planned for the upcoming summer. This was in March, right? And uh, by March or April, you know what your your summer professional development plans are in every project, and they were face-to-face -face plans that had to be shifted to online Zoom plans. So we were doing the same thing that everyone else was doing and, and trying to figure out what the best practices might be. And there were a number of projects. I can't tell you how many projects Concord has, 25 to 35, I guess, ongoing. There are many projects at Concord Consortium. And so there were many of us trying to think about or testing best practices so that we could work together then to collaborate and say, okay, do this, don't do that with breakout rooms or always have office hours above and beyond the live Zoom hours. Don't go beyond three hours at a time, have breaks, <laughs> all the kinds of things that all of us figured out about a sort of longer term professional development based, not, not school based, which I think had its own structures and disciplines and discoveries. We all work together to do our best as well during that time. And, you know, maybe we'll do some more, just, just like I was saying about K-12 and, and university, there's tools that we now have in our toolkit around professional learning using Zoom that will save some project money and, and offer, like, I'll tell you one thing that's become quite common now is uh, Zoom-based advisory board meetings. And they used to always be face-to-face -face and involve travel. And that's particularly difficult to schedule for advisory board members. And finding a couple of days for three or four-hour Zoom sessions every six months or so is, is a lot easier, as well as financially more conservative. So that's probably here to stay. So you didn't have educators virtually banging on your door saying, help me, help me. That, that didn't happen. I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's part of why I had to sort out, okay, well, I do know about asynchronous, but I'm right where you are in, in terms of uh, the pedagogical strategies for Zoom. And uh, MOOCs, you mentioned earlier, the massive open online courses, 
I mean, maybe they are incorporating Zoom, but originally they were completely asynchronous. And so now if they're having webinar kind of based Zoom sessions where you can have Q&A at the end or adding those kinds of things, that's just another tool in, in their practice that they can make more live opportunities. So, you know, I think that the pandemic has shifted a lot of practices and hopefully we'll all come out with some better combinations for learning that work for more people and offer more access. Yeah, one thing that we didn't mention yet is that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, most of the work of Concord Consortium is in the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, is, is that just because of the interest area, or is it rather than that th those are the subjects that it's most conducive for? No, that's just, it's always been a, a research and development organization looking at um, science and um, math in particular. STEM topics. So I would think that it probably would work pretty well for analysis of literature, you know, people sharing their thoughts uh, in writing. And of course, most literature courses, you're expected to write papers anyway. So you get a little practice doing that in shorter stints before you write your term paper. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that there are virtual groups that do that kind of thing. I'm not sure that there's research on better writing in the same way that there's research on better teaching science and math, but I, I'm just just not that familiar. As opposed to, let's say, learning a foreign language, that probably would be better with actual in, in, synchronous interactions and same for performing arts, you know. Uh, who knows? There's some great software out there. For, for sure, there's great software, but I would think you, you need to have also some real conversations too. So you couldn't just be all asynchronous. I guess personally, I'm a believer in immersion at that point, right? That if you want to learn, if you want to learn the language, just go and <laughs> you'll have to. I had an au pair from Brazil who was determined to learn English. And so she spent a lot of her downtime watching movies and, you know, just watching movies on Netflix as a way of virtually immersing herself in English. English language culture. Let's shift now to talking about what makes uh, an effective moderator of an asynchronous online course, which is, of course, the um, the topic of the of the book that you were a co-author of. It seems like there's a fair amount to it. Sure. So one thing that I said early and often in context where I was working with others trying to master it was sit on your hands that learning online wait time is a whole new thing. And face-to-face, -face, there's research on what's a good amount of wait time for allowing people to process, especially when they're learning something new and think and not jump in with another question or change the subject because you think that it's not going anywhere. Um, so one thing that um, I often say to people that I'm working with who are trying to improve their practice for teaching online is to sit on your hands. There's a whole different format for wait online for online wait time than there is in the classroom when even practicing just a few seconds of extra wait time to allow people to process and think about a question that might have some depth to it or some rigorous content involved. Online wait time I experimented with early on in, in professional development, and sometimes it means 24 hours. Like, if you wait 24 hours, one of your other participants will jump in and say the answer. And then that starts to create a culture of it's not all the professor or the instructor um, or the lead as the center of or the hub of a wheel and everybody else one-on-one -on -one with that person. So if you don't jump in, and you avoid setting that kind of a culture where you're going to answer questions, then others will jump in and answer questions in a professional learning context. There's, there's many layers to it because it only works if, if they're rewarded in some way that matters to them. Like this is one of the things about MOOCs is there's a huge dropout rate on MOOCs. You could have 100,000 people sign up, but then end up with 98 participants at the end who are participating to a to a small extent and I'm digressing to the to a MOOC conversation massive on, open online learning conversation but one of the interests that professors have in leading MOOCs is they find discover 
other very interesting people who know a lot about their field who might not be known or in part of a regular university or it's an opportunity to kind of cherry pick out of a huge group of people who are interested in their topic and find colleagues. So it works for them in, in that way. Of course, they're probably paid to, to teach the MOOC by whomever is um, supporting it. And maybe there's other reasons why they might do it. But it does come back to any kind of asynchronous online learning. There has to be a clear reward for the participant to participate. And then there has to be clear expectations of what they have to do for that reward. You're not just going to, if you build it, they will come with an online discussion. It's never going to happen. <laughs> Typically in professional development, you get paid for your hours participating and participating is measured in a certain way by being active in the conversations, by submitting the, those kinds of things would be expected in order to be paid or in order to get credit if it's a university course. Very, very difficult to move the needle on an online conversation when it's just about a learning topic when it's just voluntary and inherent rewards. One of my doctoral students at Pepperdine studied Breakout EDU has a Facebook group. And Breakout EDU is a sort of a framework for a game, uh, an escape room kind of a design for learning about new content and in K-12. And so there's games that are pre-designed in Breakout EDU on different, for, for every content area and every grade level, and even for your PTA meeting. I mean, all kinds of stuff is already pre-designed, but then you can design your own as a teacher. And even better, the way that the framework is created, students can design their own. So they can take over the design of the escape room in order to learn the content. And they're learning content because they're trying to figure out how, how they're going to design their escape room. So Breakout EDU had a hugely popular, I don't know, I'm saying had because I haven't visited recently, Facebook group, which was voluntary and had great conversations. And so one of my doctoral students who's interested in this topic looked at, you know, what what is it that brings people to that Facebook group and keeps them conversing? And it was pretty interesting. And, you know, what can professional development learn from that design or that inherent motivation. So getting back to the the skills needed, um, one of the pithier sayings from the book is you need to be a guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage. And of course, that very much, very much applies to uh, the kind of asynchronous type of online learning, but also is useful, I think, for in-person teaching as well, depending on the subject matter. It's, uh, and I think as the book mentions, it's, it's really, uh, there are things you can learn from online teaching that you can then bring back to in-person teaching. And that is absolutely true because there's sort of a slow motion hindsight kind of a way that you can learn those kinds of skills of how to interact with your students without taking over or filling in the blanks or leading the discussion. Here's an example. So you might want to summarize a discussion. And basically, a summary is a discussion killer. Like, it ends the discussion. And so what we talk about in facilitating online learning is rather than write a summary or have your, your, peer, your students write the summaries eventually, write landscapes. And a landscape is, okay, well, Stuart was talking about this, and this other person was talking about that, and I've been thinking a third thing, and I wonder how those things fit together and just leaving a new question so that you're sort of pulling from the discussion different little bits that um, might lead to a deeper level. Often my talks about online facilitation are titled Beyond the Brainstorm because typically online discussions are just brainstorms. Everybody just brain dumps and then they're done. And so if you take all that brain dump and you have a learning goal as the facilitator for the discussion, what did you want them to get out of it, which is what you should have had at the forefront of your mind when you designed the question, but what you want them to get out of it. And you look for the little gems in the discussion, which will lead toward that deeper place that you wanted them to discover or figure out by engaging in, in the exchange. And so you can put together those gems, two or three of them, 
and highlight the names of the people like Stuart in bright lights and Sarah in bright lights. Because then what, what I mean by that is like colored and bold for the Stuart and the Sarah. And then the, their quotes, what you're actually saying, sit on your hands again, like in italics, colored, bold, so that when you open the message, all of a sudden you see three of your peers' names and their exact quotes just by scanning the page. You see that the professor is not spewing more lecture, but highlighting the gems from the conversation that the students have brought in and then asking a kind of a critical thinking question. Basically, when an online facilitator goes to a discussion that's a brainstorm, you have to diagnose it. Does it need to focus? Like, are we completely lost here and missing the, the online content that the, was the intent of the discussion? Or are we ready to deepen? Because actually people have really brought up some of the pieces that you hoped they would bring up. And so now we can go to that deeper level where we're taking the 10,000 foot helicopter view of what might actually be learned from the content that you're studying or taken away, what the takeaways might be. So I'm gonna attempt a little analogy here that um, I, I know that you're an avid canoeer it would be like as if the teacher is just sticking the paddle in and as a rudder every now and then, making sure the canoe is moving forward in the right direction, but not actually doing much of the uh, actual paddling for, for the power paddling. That is the secret of being in the back of the canoe, right? <laughs> that you're not doing it well. You can also do the power paddling, but in your analogy, that's sure, that's, that's it. It's just, it's just a steering to support the conversation and then you have to the online wait time the students or the participants the learners need another week to come back and think about that landscape and maybe take it further or maybe that's not what goes on maybe they move on to the next bit of content but they see that and not everything that happens in an online venue happens in the online venue I mean, it's true face-to-face, -face too. You can't always see the learning that your students are taking away from your class. And it's true online. Even though you, you feel like you have all this text data, you still can't see everything that's being taken away from the class, and you're not going to know it. But there are ways of making learning and thinking explicit that would be really important. One of them is uh, how you design a question. And I said earlier that it's really important to have the goal of your discussion in mind when you design the question. What do you want this discussion to look like? And how are you going to construct a question which is going to produce that kind of discussion? And a very common mistake is to ask a question that everybody thinks, oh, I know, I don't have to ask a yes or no question. That would be bad in a discussion. But it's not just that. Don't even ask a question that only has two or three answers. You really need to design a question that has as many answers as people come to the discussion. And that is by saying, in your experience, based on your perspective of, in your culture, so things that are per like personalize it. How, what does this mean? What would this, and then you could do it forward too. So it's your background, but also how might you use this in the classroom? Between the two videos, which strategy would work better for you and why? Those are kinds of questions that have you in it you, the learner, and the responses are going to be unique. And then in those descriptions of everybody's uniqueness, you can pull out those gems that are leading toward, aha, there's some really interesting universal truths here, or there's some really useful templates in this, I see some threads. And you're not going to say, I see some threads. You're going to say, Stuart said, and Sarah noted, pointing out the threads and letting them say, oh, there's a thread here or, oh, there's two threads here, or whatever it might be. So maybe another way of putting it is that it's a question that leads to more questions. Isn't that what learning is? Yeah, one option is to ask the students to come up with their own questions. I remember there was one part of the, uh, in the book that challenges the students to write down as many questions as they can, and then if it's on a science topic, okay, now write more questions that you're gonna ask an expert scientist. So it's a, you know, further honing the questions. So that was, I thought that was really, really, really good. Where I'd like to go with this last segment is to talk about the pitfalls and how to avoid them. So for instance, uh, there's a certain kind of tone among the students that's helpful, 
and others that aren't helpful. So for instance, if, if things become too social, that would be maybe a diversion from the task at hand, or if they become argumentative, that could really shut down conversation. So how do you deal with things of that sort and if they start to occur? Well, essentially, what's most productive is a collaborative culture. And building a collaborative culture from the beginning really helps to avoid those kinds of pitfalls throughout. And how you do that is, in the background, a lot goes on. You, you mentioned earlier, MOOCs are huge, enormous courses. These would be the courses that I'm talking about, professional learning communities or university classes, seminars or on, that are online or high school classes. Really, what, I, what I'm imagining are classes that are 25 or fewer students. And you could maybe stretch that to 30, but you'd have to take the kind of advice that I'm about to give with a grain of salt, like, well, yeah, maybe with 20 to 25, but not with 30. So that said, uh, it's really important to reach out to each individual right away. Hi, Stuart. So glad that you're participating in the course. I noticed in your introduction that something unique that you say, and I'm really interested to learn more, to hear more about that as we continue so that I have a template for this Hello Stuart uh, message, but I also insert some things that are unique to Stuart that I've learned from the introductory message, from any other kinds of, like maybe you do a little bio with a picture or whatever, and some of your background. Like there's some places to look about each, each student that you can, met. basically the hidden curriculum or the message is, I'm already noticed you, and I'm excited about having you in this course, personal, one-to-one private. And then um, that conversation continues after the first week. Fantastic that you made that comment in our first discussion, or I just loved your you know, response to the first assignment because something specific, not just general things that you can just say to everybody, but I loved it because you brought in your XYZ. That that takes a lot of upfront work because doing that 25 times easily takes two or three hours. But think of all the commuter time you're saving by teaching this course online. So, and the investment that you make up front, maybe it feels like, oh my God, there's 15 hours of work in the beginning of this course, but then you're going to cruise so differently because you've established this foundation with each of your 20 or 25 students. And then you, you can send them something on a maybe once every two weeks, but you can also do other things. So one of them is only write at the end of the second week, only write to the people who you haven't heard from. Hey, Stuart, I was waiting for you to come in. I'm really missing your voice. Not where are you, what happened, those kinds of evaluative things, but I'm missing your voice. That's a really useful message subject because it's it inherently valuing rather than, you know, correcting. Ah, you you missed it. You blew it. You didn't do the thing. You can easily establish that if you've taken the time up front to uh, set a positive tone with each of the students, all in the background. Yeah, that sounds like wonderful advice, you know, to be warm, welcoming, and engaging. And as you've just said, I mean, you, you, you do that for everyone, and it, it, just one round of that will be a, enough for many, many of the students. And then for those who need even more welcoming, then you do more. Yeah, and that might just be two or three. And there might be a couple that you give them their phone number. You know, text me. I need to hear from you. And they're more willing to do that, uh, especially if you text them. They'll see that text and respond to it. And now you've got your foot in the door. I often suggest just because it's an online course doesn't mean you can't give them a call. And everybody's like, oh, my God, I don't want to make 25 calls. Well, you're not going to make 25 calls. Say you make five, and nobody answers those strange numbers they don't recognize. So you just leave this super warm, enthused, nice-sounding voicemail to them. You know, hi, this is Sarah, your professor from Pepperdine, and I'm really missing your voice in class. And they're like, hey, wow, that's, that's all right. I can respond to that. So there's, there's many ways to get your foot in the door. But then if it's a term course or, or more than just a few weeks, another piece that I build in is about week four or somewhere at the end of the first third, I would say, of a course. So week four, because most of my term courses were 12 weeks. 
I ask them to look back at all of their posts and pick the most valuable posting that they've made so far to the class and copy and paste that and talk about why they think it was valuable. And that's one of the assignments that week. And half of them, if not more, will go, we haven't said anything valuable. What are you talking about valuable to the course? Well, this is that collaborative culture. Like if you want a real collaborative culture, then everyone has to step up. That's what collaborative is. It's your turn too. It's not just sit back and, man, this professor's so boring. I can't believe I had to take this course. It's what are you bringing to it? Because cognitively, whatever you bring to it is what you're going to learn from the course anyway. So if I'm interested in all of them learning, then that's a very important cognitive step to take is that sort of public oh my gosh, <laughs> I didn't do anything and I'm going to do it so much better now. So in some ways, it might be easier to help those students who in, a, in an in-person situation might try to hide at the back of the class and not participate at all, you know, and hoping the teacher will just ignore them. It seems it's a little bit harder to be ignored, it seems to me, when it's online. Attendance equals participation, that is for sure. And uh, you need a course platform where you can sort by student and look at all their posts at once because it's impossible to do otherwise. And some of them don't make that so easy. Some, some of them you can hack to make them do that. But that would be, a, you know, another caveat to the kind of advice that I give is that some platforms work for that. Another uh, very important thing is to have the discussions be threaded not just question answer or the most recent posts at the top. You can't follow a deepened conversation that's got the most recent posts at the top. It just doesn't work that way. And yet if conversations get really big, it feels like really laborious to have to scroll all the way down. But if you can thread and then you can see all the message subjects in the thread. So like this one goes in eight and then the next one goes in four and the next one goes in seven. You've taught your students to make their own unique message subjects. So you can kind of read the progress of the conversation on the surface. That makes it so much more interesting. Oh, I want to go into this conversation. It's not all RE what the teacher asked, RE what the teacher asked, RE what the, the, which gives you a blinders as to what's going on in those conversations, unless you dig in. So is there a special uh, platform or software to be able to tease out the different threads? Oh, there's plenty of them. It's just... Those would be the things, the top things that I would look for if I was looking at a platform would be, does it thread? Can you sort by students? Even for other students, you know, wow, this steward is saying such interesting things. What else did he say? <laughs> That's kind of nice. Well, you keep complimenting me. I feel, I feel like I'm going to want to come to this class. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's working. <laughs> it's working. So what if you do all that and you still have a, a particular student who is just really not wanting to be there and is trying to disrupt in some way? Uh, what do you do with such a student? In an in-person situation, you might send them to the principal, you know? <laughs> so what do you, what do, what do, you do when it's uh, online? Well, it's hard for me to know what it means to be disruptive in an asynchronous environment. Obviously, you could think of some examples, but typically people who are paying to take a course, who are in a course in order to get uh, university credit for it. And, you know, it's not like something you just blurred out and nobody saw you. <laughs> it's on there for anybody to see that the professor might want to share it with. <laughs> you know, they could take a picture of it before you take it down. I think that's a pretty minimal difficulty. I think Possibly in MOOCs where you're more of a guppy and a big sea of fish, people are more sort of playful in a negative way. I mean, they can play around with a course. They can play around with a professor. But in a class of 25 or fewer, which is sort of my typical context, and you're building relationships, it's pretty unlikely to happen. And when you get to the point of the phone call and if they're really interested in taking the course, if they're part of a university, then there's um, protocols at the university for that sort of thing. I would think it would come up more in a, in a high school or junior high school. Yeah, so actually interesting, that, that becomes an interesting question because um, virtual high school, the virtual VHS collaborative has a model where there's a site coordinator at every school that uses virtual high school courses. It's a collaborative because 
if you have a teacher in your accredited high school who's teaching a virtual high school course, and those courses are limited to 23 students, I think, so it's, there's a context, um, a familiar context to me. In that school where that teacher teaches, now 20 students can take a virtual high school course. And if that teacher teaches two sections, now 40 students can take a virtual high school course. And if she has a friend who starts teaching in virtual high school, now you've got 80 students. So there's a way that high schools can invest in bringing virtual high school to their class, to their um, students. And then what we did in one of the high schools that was in the original grant was every student in the high school was required to take at least one virtual high school course by graduation. So as just kind of a college preparatory routine that you're going to have online experiences in college, so you should have at least one online here. But what I was going to say is that site coordinator is a, is a tool for the virtual teacher to use. Hey, Stuart, you know, I've got this student at your school who just is never coming, and can you just go tap him on the shoulder and see what's going on? I mean, I think especially in that age group, they do need the personal contact in some way. So yeah, that would be important to build in, and I can't speak for uh, how other virtual schools build that in, but I think it's pretty important, and VHS Collaborative does that. So just to clarify, the virtual high school, and I don't know if it's the same as vhslearning.org, which I found online. So they have changed their name a few times, and I apologize. I think they did, but I think when, when we often think of virtual high school, we think of as a substitute for a public school. But what you're saying is that, no, this can actually be used in addition to or incorporated within as an opportunity to take electives that aren't otherwise offered at the school. And there were 250 possible classes in, just in the language area. There was Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese, Hebrew. That's a kind of an exciting kind of possibility. And also, I would think, a way of introducing students to maybe some life, lifelong learning, showing them that there are all kinds of possibilities beyond what their individual school might offer. And, and they don't, you don't even have to be in school to to learn online. Well, I, I could talk a lot about that, actually. I mean, I think that's another impact of the pandemic. While there's been a lot of media coverage of, of the losses that have occurred as a, as a result of K-12 students having to stay home and not having the social experiences of, of school and the structures and the cult, enculturation of school context, there's also been the other side of the story, which is that young students, even elementary students, who work very fast and have a good space at home to work in and have whatever support or structure might have been needed that uh, was appropriate, have simmered along. And the parents are like, I do not want to send them to the middle school. <laughs> I'd much rather have them do this. So I think it's gone both ways to some extent, um, not necessarily in an equitable fashion whatsoever. So there's always that issue. But I think it's not necessarily to homeschooling, but to the opportunities, as you were saying, of sort of online learning from home. And, and it seems to be there are enormous class differences in terms of how much support they have at home, how much modeling they have for academic learning from their parents. And I think an awful lot of parents in Las Cruces, which is a pretty poor small city, really had no way of, of really guiding their children in the online context. Plus, they maybe had to go to work. I mean, it just it created that whole dilemma. But it seems to me that online learning works best for motivated students, uh, at least somewhat motivated. I and mean, as, as you pointed out earlier, with the various kinds of engagement and welcoming, you can bring students in who might be reluctant. But if it's worse than reluctant, <laughs> then you might might be in trouble with such students. My sort of extreme pedagogical position is that if learners are really in charge of their learning, which I think that they should be, then I would like to see students who can progress not have to wait for the next year in order to move on to the next subject or whatever it might be and maybe finish by the time they're 16 uh, in 10th grade or whatever they should be in 10th grade. But there's a lot of equity issues involved in that, and I have a huge amount of respect for the importance of 
children learning together in diverse contexts, and there's a lot more learning than goes on than content. And so I'm still learning. You said earlier about questions leading to questions and how that's a really interesting way to go is to even just think about question development. Because if you end a, a lesson on questions, hey, that's really true because the learning is always ongoing. There's always more to learn about everything, anything. One of the things I came across in the, in the book was about three-dimensional science. So ideas, learning what scientists do, and then doing science themselves, making their own discoveries. That sounded like something that can be done online or not online. That thought and also the thought about uh, questions that there are ways of doing, whether it's STEM subjects or non-STEM subjects, making it into a creative, engaging activity rather than in the old days. I mean, I mean, I mean, the very old days, you know, it was a lot of memorization and not, not just times tables, but memorizing passages and poetry and putting a big premium on, on repeating and reciting. And I think that we've come a long way in most, probably most schools in, in really trying to stimulate thinking abilities and crit critical thinking, creative thinking, engaged thinking. Innovation. And it sounds like Concord uh, Consortium has been doing that since the earliest days of the internet. I guess the internet had started already, but it hadn't become a popular medium yet. So, you know, it's when the Concord Consortium started, it was just when it was becoming available. Right. Well, it wasn't released from the... Right, from the military. Right. It was released by the military, yeah, in the mid-90s. That's right. So any... Um... If you want to put on your profit hat, uh, any predictions about where things will go in the future? Well, I hope that one of the silver linings of the remote learning pandemic-based stage is that more digital tools are in more classrooms because I think they do make learning more engaging. And I think that so many different careers are deeply involved in using online tools and internet-based tools for work that we really need to keep moving forward in digitizing education and using the advantages of online simulations and online learning platforms for more teaching and learning, even even in the high school, middle school levels. So that's what Concord's working on anyway. And it kind of f fell in our laps that m more teachers perhaps have had more experience now. And maybe it's, it's still too soon to tell, I think, because we're still sort of somewhat in the emergency stage. This has not been a good year for teachers either for so many reasons, and it's not getting any better anytime soon. So there isn't yet time to sit back and reflect. <laughs> I think K-12 is still scrambling. But I hope that the outcome is that we do have much more infrastructure and more students have devices in their hands and at home, and that the learning can be deepened as a result. Well, that's the hope, isn't it? Well, thank you so much, uh, Sarah Hovind, a Senior Research Project Manager at Concord Consortium, a nonprofit educational research and development organization. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. You're so welcome. It was very interesting to talk with you, Stuart. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.